Lord, we're amazed that we can even in any way, in any form, in any fashion be in your presence. Holy, holy are you, Lord, God Almighty. We stand amazed here who you are, what you've done. Lord, your holiness is something that we would actually shield ourselves from while we're here. We really can't even bear it. But we look forward to the day when with the rest of the redeemed we'll be able to sing in your very presence. Holy, holy, holy are you Lord God Almighty. So Father, as we continue before you today, may we May we learn what you have for us. May we take it home with us. May we live it out in our lives. We ask this through the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Before I begin my message today, I'd like to point out, this was here last week as well. This is our theme for all our messages for this entire year. Uh, you may wonder what the uh, um, the cane is up there. Well, that stands for Aaron's rod uh, that budded, right? Okay. And then also, uh, that is a mini little statue of Moses, the lawgiver, done by Michelangelo. For those of you who are art aficionados, you'll note that his horns are gone. That's because Barb wouldn't have horns in her house. So she removed them. <laughs> anyway, um, so I want you to note note those things and uh, and just keep in mind that what we're talking about, even when we're talking about the law or the commandments, it's really all about grace properly understood. So during a, uh, a TED talk, Sir um, Ken Anderson, who's a best-selling British author, he tells the story of a six-year-old girl who was drawing in art class when the teacher uh, came up to her and asked her, what are you drawing? And the girl answered, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher says, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl said, well, they will in a minute. <laughs> I mean, uh, children have this uh, audacious creativity where they'll go after uh, anything, uh, won't they? I mean, on, on one hand, uh, as Sir Robinson goes on uh, to argue that we educate out of uh, six-year-olds that kind of creativity that allows them to uh, be artists, uh, in their adult life by an education system that's bound to uniformity and rote and to knock out all the daydreamers. He pointed out that Picasso said that all children are artists. Uh, the problem is staying one. I actually agree with all those sentiments. But on the other hand, there is also something there that points not only to creativity, but to something more. 
And that is our propensity toward idolatry. As innocent uh, and as noble as early efforts uh, may be, nevertheless, human beings want to know. We want to systematize. We want to categorize. And above all, we need to do this because we need predictability. It's actually built into our very into our very beings, into our very existence. For example, outside of our awareness, because we don't think of such things, we simply do them. If you drove this morning, uh, you used a concept called convergence. And you use that because it's predictable. It keeps you safe. And what that is, is that if an automobile looks smaller... It's further away. If it looks if it looks bigger, it's closer. And so, when we merge into traffic, we do that whether we think of it or not, based on the predictability of how size converges on the horizon. If it did not do that, we would all be dead. Not only that, I mean, even at a more profound level, what if gravity was random? We wouldn't be here. Our brains, our bodies, our very existence are built for predictability. And and when we don't have it, when we don't see it, and you can go onto YouTube and find hundreds, thousands of experiments where they show this, our brain literally fills in the gap that we do not actually see or perceive. It just builds it. It just makes it there. It's an amazing thing uh, how we operate. And so when it comes to this uh, difficulty that we have about idolatry, it's when our desire for predictability uh, outstrips our desire to know God for who God actually is. So if we know that God is predictable... And then we know how he works. That makes us take comfort. It makes us feel safe when we know all the if-thens. You know, I do this, this will be the result. And when we believe that we know those things, then we can uh, feel safe. But that's not how it works. Because when those predictabilities that we've created in our minds are shattered by disease or accident or failure... We struggle. God, you say, you said, you promised you would never leave and forsake me, but I am, in fact, alone. You said your plans were to prosper in me, but I'm, I'm destitute. You said you would protect me, but I am undone. And so in our desire for predictability and to try to set that up, we actually set ourselves up for idolatry. Now, I've used that term several times. (laughs) We don't use idolatry in our language today. When was the last time outside of church did you hear the word idol or idolatry? If you're thinking of an idol, you're thinking of a singer or some other type of sports hero or something like that. You're certainly not thinking anything bad, right? So as always, we have to turn to Scripture 
to find out, to discover what God's directions, His intentions, His will are in the matter. So if you have your Bibles, electronic or otherwise, if you'd open to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. In Exodus 20, 4 through 6, we find the second commandment. And that is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, Barbara and I lived in Italy for uh, three years. It was absolutely a a wonderful place to live. And one of our favorite activities was, in, in fact, as a practice, um, we didn't pass up any churches. We saw a church, we went in. I mean, and part of the reason for that is you never knew, really, seriously, you never knew if you were going to run into a, a, a Michelangelo or a Benelli, or a Donatello, or some other great Italian sculptor, one of their pieces of work in that, in that church. We wanted to see as many as we could. And honestly, you almost have to see them in person to truly be staggered by the ability and the skill. Just they're, they're truly uh, marvelous. Now, if you take a casual reading of Exodus 20, that might lead you to believe that God is saying no. No to artwork. I don't want any of uh, that sort of thing. No to creating the beauty of the natural world. No photographing sunsets. Don't do it. You may walk away with nothing of beauty to be created out of wood or stone or metal. No images of the planets, the stars, Angels even, if you're talking about the heavens, it's not only the planetary bodies, but also whatever beings might occupy that. No moon, no sun, no fish, no nothing. And some people actually do take it that way, by the way. In fact, a number. And perhaps for the Jews of the Exodus, one could argue uh, that for them... Every carved thing that they had ever seen in their entire lives uh, was somebody's God. Um, Certainly not theirs. But, I mean, there are those who would say that this stained glass behind us is an idol. Some would say, if you're wearing a cross, that's an idol. The little carving on the front of our pews, on the side of the pews or the front of the pulpit. Idols. People take that kind of thing... And I'll say a little bit more about that uh, later as we go along. But of course, the statues in Italy, uh, the necklace that you're wearing, my little Michelangelo here, and if you come to our house, uh, be prepared. We have a bunch. (laughs) And they're in prominent places. We even have Michelangelo's David. We have them all there. But we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that an idol has no real existence. 
and that there is no God but one. So what Paul means by that is that an idol is nothing except for that which we make of it. What he's saying, probably closer to our modern language, is that before it was wood or before it was stone or before it was metal, it was an idea. It was mental. I mean, in, indeed, these th- anything, these things, the little statues, they could be idols. They certainly could because somebody could invest that kind of meaning in them. But even if they did, they would still be nothing. Statues that we saw in Italy uh, are not idols. They are creations of wonderful art to be enjoyed and appreciated. Because a careful look at Exodus 20, and this is what happens. This is literally what happens when you take a verse out of its context. You end up with wacky ideas. You end up with things that don't make even any sense at all. Because I tell you what, if you've ever seen a really gorgeous sunset, especially on the beach, or maybe you did, you know, the rim ride around a volcano up in uh, Hawaii or something, guess what? You have a mental image. It's there. It's the way we're built. It's the way we're made. There's a difference, though, and that's what we're going to look at as, as, we, as we go along. So what we discover with a closer look at Exodus 20 here in these verses is that the prohibition is not actually against art. It's not against the reproduction of some beauty that we've seen in creation. The prohibition is against the bowing down worshiping and serving of something, anything other than God. That's what the prohibition is. So when we understand what the actual prohibition against is, that is the worship of anything other than God, then we're able to say, this may actually have something uh, to do with me today. I mean, how many of you... Go home to your little idols and worship them. Not many. So we're safe, right? This doesn't apply to us. All we're doing here when we talk about Exodus 20 then is saying, wow, look at us, how right we are, how wrong others are. But that's not the case. Because this actually even affects us in our own country. This isn't something that simply occurs in some other parts of the world. And if your memory is long enough, and some of you may not even ever heard her name, you may remember Shirley MacLaine screaming, I am God, I am God. And it's not just a movie line, she actually believes it. Or even more recently, a number of years ago, but closer, Kathy Griffin, when she accepted her 2007 Emmy, said this, A lot of people come up here and they thank Jesus for this award. I want you to know that no one had less to do with this award than Jesus. He didn't help me a bit. So all I can say is blank, blank, Jesus, this award is my God now. How much hate? must be in one's heart to demean, diminish, and belittle 
a Jesus that she doesn't even believe exists. She must be talking to us. Okay, but that's out there. That's still out there. That's still out there. What about us? What, what about us in here? What about members of the body of Christ? Does the second commandment have anything to say to us? Can idolatry be so subtle that it might actually have an impact on you and me? I mean, listen, if you study the Scripture, you learn this, that the most common warning in Scripture about sin is about idolatry. It's not about lying, as bad as that is. It's not about uh, gossiping, as bad as that is. It's not about adultery, as bad as that is, or stealing or murder. It's about idolatry. The most common thing in the Bible to reject to rid yourself of, to uh, set aside is idolatry. And it's not just the Old Testament where we've spoken from time to time of the, uh, the Ashtaroth, the Ashtaroth poles and that sort of thing in the Old Testament. Re- recall in 1 John 5, 1 John 5, it says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So apparently, even among Jesus-redeemed, Holy Spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christians, idolatry is still bent in our hearts. Our hearts are still turned toward them. It's not just a pagan issue. It's not just an Old Testament issue. It's not just a New Testament issue. It's a human issue. Let me state the obvious that as Paul did. There's no piece of wood or stone or bronze that can do anything bad to you at all. It doesn't exist. Unless somebody throws it at you, that might hurt. But it can't by itself do anything to you. What happens is we do something dreadful to ourselves when we put our adoration and our affection onto something, anything other than God. So when it comes to idolatry, it's not the piece of wood or stone or metal, it's our hearts. It's our hearts that are just, in fact, John Calvin said, our heart is an idol factory. Sometimes it's an idol factory, for those of you who get the pun. In a a fallen world, though, we constantly seek things we can worship. Even, even when the Creator is in plain view in, in front of us. And, and so what is the source of that? The source of idolatry, according to Colossians 3, 5, uh, is this. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, comma, which is idolatry. So here we see that the uh, what's behind idolatry is 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 to be to covet, to want something uh, that is not yours. And it, when you do that, what happens is that thing gets larger and larger until finally it consumes your mind, and it diverts your heart from your focus on on God. 
Uh, too often, uh, it's not a thing. Uh, too often, it's a person. Uh, and very often, the biggest idol uh, many look at is when they wake up in the morning and they brush their teeth. I mean, we are by nature, and I hope you understand this, None of us are excluded from this. None of us are excluded from this at all. We are self-involved. We are absolutely egocentric. Our thoughts revolve around me, me, me. It's part of our nature. It's, it's, the, it's the part that Jesus Christ, He came to heal and forgive and redeem us as whole persons. But that's the big piece. That's the big piece. Because as I mentioned last time, it's not that we simply don't uh, want to obey God. We don't want to obey Satan either. We certainly don't want to obey other people. We don't even obey our own hearts many, many times. I mean, this is the same thing... uh, that filled Satan's heart when he challenged God, as we read of in Isaiah 14. That spirit is utterly destructive and can only be countered by godly humility. Now, I I believe that this initial impulse, oh, by the way, I believe that this initial impulse in the heart of mind to structure an image of God is innocent and it is noble. The problem is, is it runs through a fallen... Because we have to have an image of God. You and I have to have an image of God. Otherwise, we can't think about Him. We can't talk about Him in any kind of rational way. The problem is, is that when we freeze that image, when we make that image where it cannot change, and it begins to consume our life in such a way that it does us harm... Because we want to be, we want this image to be who we think God should be and not who he actually is. We have no space for change. We have no space to say that it's something uh, different. And in fact, what we do is we make the very commandment not to create an idol an idol. We make the commandment. We can even do that with the Bible. I mean, idolatry is so untrustworthy that even the prohibition against graven images can itself become an idol. The Bible can become an idol. And when a person uses a proof text as a pretext to judge somebody, they're on that slippery slope. When somebody uses a translation to condemn another translation... They're they're on a slim limb out there. Pride is what's doing this. Pride is what's creating something in the heart other than a focus, a laser focus on on God. You know, most of the people in uh, the the time of Moses, of course, they were were illiterate. doesn't mean they weren't intelligent. It just means that they didn't read, they didn't write. So there was a lot of storytelling. There was a lot of flannel graphs going on to remember it was the way they wrapped their minds around it and if you're wondering why if you go over if you go to europe and you go or you see photos of any of these great cathedrals and you have all of these stained glass windows up and down the side 
it's because most of those people could not read. And so it was these pictures that allowed them to remember the story. And they could just think in their mind through the pictures and then they could remember the story. So what happens, though, is as we've gone come along and we don't, we still use a lot of pictures, of course, but we don't think in terms of creating something. Uh, certainly the Protestant church does not think of creating something as a, 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 a window into reflecting upon uh, God. We do that in our, in our minds with the word. But the problem is evil is always there. It doesn't need to be there. We're perfectly capable of messing it up ourselves. But evil, an evil entity is always there. And we must understand that, that always in every place and all time, he will take advantage if he can. Don't think for one second that, that, God, uh, that uh, Satan will not move you towards being religious either. He absolutely will, and he'll delight in it. And he will laugh the whole way, because the more religious you become, generally speaking, the more your relationship with Christ will suffer. Because it's not about religion, it's about Christ. As we move towards legalism, as we move, the more righteous we feel, the more danger, I believe, that we're in. And the more spiritual we feel about it, especially when it comes to judging others, the more difficult a place that we're in. When we look at Exodus 20, 4 through 6 here, uh, you'll see, or actually if you look at it broader, uh, you'll look at some of these commandments and they occupy very little space. In fact, three of them only take up 13 words, the total, all total. But this second one takes up three full verses. Of course, the verses weren't original to the text, but regardless, it takes up almost a hundred words. I mean, this alone should give us some indication of how important it is. Yet in today's world, when you're worried about your spouse, when you're worried about your child, when you're worried about a relative doing something wrong... Is bowing down to idols at the top of your list? It's probably not. It's probably not on the top ten. I mean, we don't even think that way. And yet, in the eyes of God, this command is right up at the top. Why? Because the creation of idols, even one of trying to be true to God in that sense is dangerous because creating an idol by definition limits it. You, you freeze it. You, you, you freeze it in time. If you go on to uh, like photography uh, blogs and they'll talk about, they'll talk and they'll talk infinitum, ad infinitum about this stuff. How do you capture a person's essence? Well, I, I don't know. And I, Apologies to any photographers out there, but I can answer it in two words. You can't. You cannot. It's not possible. Nothing other than the thing itself is that. In other words, you can write reams. I could write reams of paper and photos and movies and whatever I wanted to do about Barb 
but none of them contain her, or in fact, they're only a fuzzy reflection of something about her, maybe. Barb's the only Barb. God is the only God, and when you try to do anything, even with right motive, it doesn't matter, you've limited, you've frozen, you cannot have anything other than the primary object as the object. It's the old African proverb, I showed you the moon and all you saw was the tip of my finger. <laughs> now on the service, of course, believers quickly say, we don't create idols. And, and I, I mean, in terms of what the commandment is referring to directly to these Israelites, uh, yeah, no, no, we we don't. We're far more sophisticated than that. But that doesn't mean that we're free from the creation of idols. And and how do you know if you've got even the beginnings of an idol? Well, it's when something goes wrong, usually. When you have a missed expectation about God, and you say, God, you know, and it, I'll put it to you this way. I did a study on chaplain corps personnel and the traumas they experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan, changes in faith. And I can tell you right now that a number of chaplain corps personnel who believed in God before they left did not believe in God when they got back. You know why? Because what they saw was not consistent with the image of God that they had created in their minds. And what they and I'm not saying anything about what one might see and how inconsistent that might be with anything one might imagine. But the truth is, the truth is that God is God whether what we think matches up to him or not is. We become angry. Our image cannot capture Him. Does God heal the sick? You bet He does. Does He keep us safe? You bet He does. Does He help us through our family struggles? Absolutely. But does He do that all times? Every time? No, He does not. Not for everyone, not in every situation. I mean, when you read in Scripture, in fact, you look at it, what you find is, even the disciples had questions like that. What, what, what? But I mean, how many widows were there at Zarephath? I don't know. But he, Elijah only went to one. This wraps hard on our mental idols. Especially this one. You can do everything right. You can do everything right and it still work out wrong. Oh, wait, that doesn't... That's not fair. In fact, in Andrew Lloyd Webber's beautiful musical, Beautiful, Whistle Down the Wind, the demand was someone has to pay. Someone has to be at fault. Bad things don't happen to good people. Yeah, they do. So how do you put that? How do you, how does your image how does that frame in there? Well, I tell you how it does is is it's out of humility. God, I don't understand what you're doing is not the same as God, you don't know what you're doing. We have to be humble in how we see about uh, God. I mean, when you think about Scripture, Jesus 
didn't heal everybody. There were disasters in the Bible that took the lives of God-fearing men. In fact, many of them quite deliberately are mental Idols are designed to give us security and ironically enough, it's those idols that take our security away. What we have to do, what we must do is lean only on God and not allow ourselves to be collapsed upon our own hearts. One of the treasures that Barbara has kept uh, for many, many years was given to her by her mother which in turn uh, she had gotten from her mother. It's a bookmark. And on it is a poem written by Annie Johnson Smith. I don't know if you've ever heard of Annie Johnson Smith, but I will say this in general, though. If you ever read anything that touches your heart, that's because whoever wrote it had a broken heart. I, I can almost guarantee that. If it touches you, it broke them. I mean, that's the only way I can... But anyway, Annie was was born on Christmas Eve. And when Annie was three, her mother died in childbirth. And their father, who was already terminally ill, uh, left Annie and that newborn uh, sister to stay with the Civil War widow of one of his uh, buddies during the Civil War. Turns out they weren't welcomed in that home. But, and it was, the plight was really so bad and they were so mistreated that uh, one of the neighbor ladies decided to take them in. And they had a wonderful time there until uh, Annie graduated from high school, and within three months, uh, both of them uh, had died. And the two sisters, they tried to make ends uh, meet. Her sister was quite frail. Annie loved to teach, and so she taught school for two years. Uh, Then she began to get uh, rheumatoid arthritis and within another year she was actually wheelchair bound for the rest of her life Uh, they were destitute they lived on the goodwill of others and Annie who had long loved to write poems to ease her just simply for her own heart and and to help those around her Uh, actually some of the stuff she wrote somehow got to some publishers and they said hey you know you might be able to make a living doing this. She didn't dictate. She somehow wrote with her own hands. And the words of the poem that Barbara has and that kept was uh, one that she wrote that some of you might know. It actually is a, a, a song in the very old hymn books. God hath not promised skies always blue flower-strown pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain, but God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. And make, make no mistake, Those words are an image of God in her mind. They're a statue, something that's a frame of reference, but not an idol, by no means. Her words are deeply reflective of what God has and has not promised. She does not dictate to God, but rather 
she in humility recognizes God as God and she's able to put the God of unfailing sympathy and undying love into the framework of her own crippled body and her own tragic beginnings and her difficult life. We must never allow God ourselves to define God so narrowly that when that image cracks, our very faith in him begins to crumble. And yet it may be at that very moment that we realize that God is bigger than that. It may be that at that moment we can find that we can shed this naive and ridiculous notion that we can capture anything of him at all. We cannot explain and define an infinite holy God. And I think knowing and embracing and living this is to our benefit. It will make our hearts more joyful because we should talk about God. We should create images that allow us to think deeply about Him. But we should never ever create an idol. Our ideas and images and experience should never take the place of God. And so the end of it is this, and what it always has been and what it was at the beginning. Fix your vision on God eternal. And that's when we will experience God's goodness and power in our lives, not necessarily the way we think or want, but the way that He wills. Father, we, we stand before You in deep humility, knowing that not only with John as we studied in the book of Revelation, would not even be able to stand but fall at your feet as though dead. We can't even be in the beams, the effulgence, the radiance of your glory, much less your, your presence. We look for the day when we will be transformed and then we will be able to be with you fully who you are, who we are. Through Christ our Lord, amen.